G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendour and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Istha, Harbona, Biktha and Abagtha, Sethar and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men, who knew the times, that this was the king's procedure toward all who are versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shetha, Admatha, Tashish, Miris, Marsina and Memukan the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memican said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, 
but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the Queen's behaviour will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the Queen's behaviour, will say the same to all the King's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the King, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. Good morning, everyone. Again, um, fantastic to see you all. Uh, if you're I'm Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here on the team. If you're new or visiting, great to have you with us. If you're watching online, great to have you as well. The book of Esther. So it begins chapter one, and as it begins, I want to begin with a question which I think this book addresses in the pages ahead, which is, where is God? Where is, where is God? Do you ever ask that question? Where is God as you read the news or you watch online what happens in our world? Where is God when you go through the daily routine of your life and encounter difficulties and challenges? Where is He? Where's God? Let me give you a couple of examples. Let's first look at the big scene. So it was 1917. In the middle of World War I, the world is locked in war and the British Empire is in a bad way on the trenches of the Western Front in France and they decide, what are we going to do? And one of their decisions was, well, we need the support of the international Jewish community. And so in November 1917, the British Foreign Secretary, Arthur Belper, made what today is a famous declaration which has in many ways changed the world in which we live. It said this, His Majesty's government's views with favour, the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object. Now, if you understood that language, a massive political change. But how did that happen? How did it come about? It came about because of self-interest, expediency, political pragmatism of the British Empire. Where was God in that? Where was the miracle in that? It came to pass through the normal procedures of power politics. Isn't that typical? Uh, we Christians claim that God is sovereign over our world, but where is he? when you read the news? Where is he when you watch the events of the world on the TV screens? Where is God? And where's God in those areas of your life? Uh, again, each of us come with those this morning. Where is God when it hurts? Uh, where is God when you are confused? Where's the miracle where God shows up and goes, wow, here's the angel speaking to me about my concern? How come we read in the Bible of God parting the Red Sea? Well, when, when does he part the Red Sea in our lives? 
Um, When do we see the water come out of the rock when we need it? When does God raise the dead in our life? When do those things happen? Why is it that often he seems to be so absent? Hold that question. Because we're going to look at it in more detail in a moment. But let's now dive in. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign. So that's locating us historically in the Persian Empire, one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. And we're located in the city of Susa, which is like the Canberra. <laughs> of Australia. It's the center of power. It's a little bit different to Canberra, as you'll see. Um, and we, it, it's a, a vast empire ruled by an absolute despot, and we meet him in the first verse, Ahasuerus is his name. Now, Ahasuerus, what a mouthful, and if you pronounce it differently, well, you know, I've got no idea how to pronounce it. I'm just trying to be consistent, but you will probably know him if you know your history by his Greek name, Xerxes. Xerxes the first. Ahasuerus, it's the same person. And history tells us that he's tall, strikingly handsome, utterly ruthless, and with an ego to match. Um, Archaeologists have found a picture of him. (laughs) Hey, no, that's not the picture. Where's the, no, I think we have one of an inscription. We might not. There he is. There he is. Um, Sorry about that. Yeah, blame blame Jack at the back on the sound. (laughs) Um, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, uh, his, his power was immense and um, archaeologists have found a legitimate inscription um, and this is what it says, you can see it to this day. Um, this is what the inscription says. I think we've got an image of it, there it is. Ahasuerus the great king, the king of kings, the king of the lands occupied by many races, the king of this great earth. So says Ahasuerus. You get an idea of the character of this man. That's the setting. The timing is 483 BC to be exact. It's the third year of his reign. Get some perspective. Confucius is teaching philosophy in China. Uh, Athletes are training for the Olympic Games in Athens. Pericles is a pioneering democracy. Pythagoras is about to develop the only theory in mathematics that I ever understood. That's the context. But for God's people, the Jewish people of the Old Covenant, the ones he's revealed himself to, this is a, ba- a black time. Uh, it's, not, it's in the, the period of time when they've been destroyed, the city of Jerusalem's been destroyed, they've been sent as exiles. Now it's true that Ahasuerus' granddad, whose name was Cyrus, has allowed some, or allowed the Jewish people to go back and the city to be rebuilt. And a couple of years ago now, we did uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're written at the same time as Esther. It's it's contemporary accounts. And they see there some people going back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the temple. But most Jews chose to remain in Persia. And it was a dark time where anti-Semitism was just lurking around every corner. And they were never to forget that they were an occupied, subject, defeated people. And as it begins in verse 5, it begins... Uh, or the scene starts to wind up, it begins with the mother of all parties. And I don't know if you heard, as you heard it read there, this is a party on an epic scale. I doubt you've been to a party like this. And we know from history that King Ahasuerus has got an ulterior motive in this party. 
The Bible doesn't tell us, but history is very clear that the, the, the context is, and there's been movies are made about this, Ahasuerus' father, Darius, went, to, he, his empire ruled into Europe, into Greece. He wanted to take more of Europe and standing in the road was the Greek states, especially the, the state of Athens. And so he sent his army to take on Athens and lost. And from which we get the word, what happened in that? The, the battle of Marathon, from which we get Marathon, of course, with the good news of the Greek win. But the son, he says, well, I'm going to do one better than dad. I'm going to revenge him, and I'm going to take out those Greeks. And so as this, as this story begins in Esther, King Ahasuerus, is, his motivation of having a party is not just to have a great time. He wants the military and the governors. They're planning a war, a war on an epic scale. In the end, Ahasuerus will send four million men and 1,200 warships to take on the Greeks. So that's the, the, the context of this party that's happening. He wants to impress everyone, and he does a pretty good job at it. Did you notice? You notice the opulence and the riches of his, I imagine like the scene in Bunnings, you know, and you're walking through saying, so you know, what do you think we do for the curtains? And um, do you like those, you know, maybe the, the sort of beigey color? No, no, I, I want the purple ones. Now, we go purple, big deal. Purple in that day was exorbitantly expensive. Only royalty could wear it. And here in this party, there is purple hanging around the rooms. You've got, you got to think, you would have blown your mind at that time. Not only that, but the couches, you're in the Bunnings again, and you say, like, what about the leather couch? It's pretty expensive. It's written in there. Well, for the truly discerning buyer, let me introduce you to the solid gold couches. That go really, and look, and then what about the flooring? Of polished wood? No, no, no. You, you want the precious stone flooring. Everyone's got it now. You, you can imagine the kind of scene. And then it's the, and then it, we're told that the money's flowing and it's, it's liberally and the wine is flowing too. And it's served in solid gold cups, handed out like we hand out plastic cups at a barbecue. It's crazy. And the wine is flowing. The king says, let everyone drink as much as they want. No inhibitions. Is that a good idea? Ever been to a party where that happens? I've been to a lot in the army where there's an open bar tab. It starts civilized and it doesn't end that way. And what happens as Ahasuerus has got his military commanders together after a big impact, it gets messy. And it starts to get messy. In verse 10, the king is, uh, is having a wonderful time and he has this probably drunken inspired thing. It's time to bring out the piece de resistance. It's time to bring out the trophy wife, the sexual conquest, Vashti, stunningly beautiful. Let's bring her and parade her out before all the presumably drunken commanders and soldiers. That'll be, that'll be where this is all heading. So on the seventh day, the king orders Queen Vashti to be brought before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. She was a stunner. And where it says there, and this is no joke, you think I'm making this up, but I'm not, where it says, with her royal crown, there are a number of serious Bible commentators who believe that the king's order was just to be wearing the royal crown. But even if that's not the case, you get the context. So he makes the orders, it's sent out, and verse 12, Vashti makes the decision. No. Not coming. Mm-mm. Vashti says, no, in the face of the overwhelming power of the king of this great earth. And we have a problem. 
at least for King Ahasuerus. Now, uh, wouldn't you love to know more about this? Why did Vashti say no? Because she wanted to start the Me Too movement of her time. Did she, she want to say, no, this is a stand for women's rights and I refuse to be exploited as a sexual object uh, by this king and his drunken commanders. Uh, why? I mean, I've, I've got a suspicion that it was, that may have been somewhere close to the truth, that here was a woman who went, well, no, that's enough. I'm not doing it. Out of courage and conviction. Wouldn't you love to know? But we don't know. We would love to be able to do some PhD theses on the motivations of Vashti's heart. The writer doesn't tell us. The writer, I think, says it's not important. Interesting, but not important. But whatever the, the motivations Vashti had, and we don't know, she was at a party of her own, she might have been drunk as well, for all we know. But whatever the motivations of her heart were, she can't have anticipated what happened next. Because things suddenly move with incredible speed. Verse 12, the king becomes enraged. His anger burns within him. He's a man who held the life and death of millions in his hands. He had 10,000 elite bodyguards called the immortals. And he can't even control his wife. Awkward. Really awkward. And you can sense the laughter here, um, I think, in the author. The king of this great earth is now in a crisis. We've got an emergency. You know, and so the king calls together the cabinet and the, the wise men, and, and, and then what are we going to do? And the answer comes from a man called Memekin, who it really could have been taken straight out of kingdom in the Barbie movie, because this is what he says in verse 17. And this is a kind of paraphrase. Man, we have a problem. This is going viral. Hashtag Vashti said no. Like the, the, the twi- the, it's humming on social media. It's, everyone's talking about this. All of the women are talking about it, and everywhere... Women will be treating their husbands with contempt. They'll be going, no, 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 no. Where's it going to end? And you can imagine the crisis there. The best heads of the kingdom are together. And it's funny, I think. And I think we're meant to see it as funny. This, this like, crisis of the kingdom. And, his, his, and Memekin's bright-eyed solution is, we'll make an example of Vashti and we'll command the women to obey their husbands. And that'll work. I mean, I've been married 25 years. When did commanding a woman to do anything ever work? Never. In the midst of all the pomp and the incredible power, the writer is poking fun at the greatest, most powerful man on the face of the earth. And so Esther chapter one ends. Now, obviously, it's setting the scene, what's going to come in the weeks ahead. It's an interesting story. It's going to get a lot more interesting in the next couple of weeks. But you've got to ask the question, why is that in the Bible? Why? I mean, it's, it's a historical event, but there's a lot of historical events that are not in the Bible. Why is this one in there? What are we to make of it? And the big question, which I began with, I'm going to go back to that question I asked, where is God? Where is God? And you go, well, of course he's in the book because it's in the Bible. Did you, did you notice, was the name of God mentioned in chapter one? Once? A hint? Uh-uh. Well, of course it'll come in chapter two or chapter three. It's It's not in the entire book, not once. Not once is God's name mentioned in the whole book. It's the only book of the Bible that's true. It's unique in that way. God is not mentioned once. And it's not just God not being mentioned. There's no mention of religious observances. There's no no mention of all the things we expect to see. Prayer to God, prophets or angels being sent from him. There's not a single mention of the salvation history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God's work saving his people, which we see in every other Bible book. Where is God? He's apparently not there. He's strikingly absent in his own book. And this is a theme that's going to come up 
from week to week as we look at Esther, I want to deal with it at the beginning and ask that question, where is he? Where is God? It's a question the people of the time were asking, where's God? Their nation's defeated, they're in exile. Their sins are black. Has God finished with his people? Done with them? Is it all over? Is that why they're suffering? Well, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, written at the same time, they say no. God's on the move. Temple's being rebuilt. Walls of Jerusalem are being restored. God's still active. And those books, Ezra and Nehemiah, saturated with the presence of God. Esther, you don't see God posing for a portrait in Esther. You don't see him mentioned at all. Where is he? He's seemingly absent, but is he? In Esther, we see that God is working in the shadows. He may not be leaving his calling card for everyone to see, but he is working out his plans. Uh, Christians, we call this term, and and maybe you've, you've heard it, providence. The providence of God. Providence is described, one um, writer says, providence is the preservation, the care, and government which God exercises over all things he's created in order that they may accomplish the ends for which they were created. God's sovereign ruling power so that everything he created will meet the ends for which it was created. The Bible says that that providence um, God's God's active in decisions between a husband and wife. God's active in parties. God's active even on the casino floor in the roll of a dice. There's a verse, Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, the lot is cast into the lap. But every decision is from the Lord. Every time you roll some dice, kids, every time you roll the dice, the Bible would say God determines what those numbers will be. His providence is over everything. Now, the actors in God's world, you and me, nations, political entities, we're free to choose, completely free to make the decisions in accordance with our desires, but standing above all is a God who knows and ordains all things. It's providence. In the book of Esther, it deals, it opens that question, well, where is God, though, when we don't see it, when there's no miracle? And there is no miracle in chapter one. There's not a single time does it say, and God ordained it, dot, 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 dot. We're just told what happens. And it seems to be completely separate from what God is doing. Just normal human actions, some of them sinful, which create a cause and effect. They don't often seem that significant, actually, the actions in chapter one of Esther. Like, what's that got to do with us? But these are God's providence. And we're gonna see in the weeks ahead that while God is hidden, he's not absent Oh no, he is not absent. He is working his providence in a hidden but irresistible manner. And there's a truth here we need to grasp as we begin Esther. Isn't it true that when you and I encounter those difficulties in our own life, that we wanna see the amazing miracle? The extraordinary splitting of the skies and the presence of the angel and, and suddenly like the angel goes bang, you know, this is, this is now gonna happen or we pray and then we see an extraordinary miracle and it happens. And you know what? Sometimes God does exactly that. Sometimes our God who stands above the circle of this world and is divine, over, he can do a miracle anytime he wants and he does. I've seen him act in that way. Maybe you have too, but it's the exception, isn't it? 
Most of the times when we want those miracles, we don't seem to see them. But the book of Esther teaches us that God is present even when we don't. He's hidden, but he's there. We're not alone. And this is not a random, chaotic universe where things are just unfolding in a haphazard way. Take, for example, let's think about um, Bible prophecy related to the birth of Jesus. So Bible, hundreds of years before Jesus, the prophets predicted that Jesus, the, the Messiah of God, would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. But open up the New Testament, the book of Matthew, and where is, where is Jesus' parents living at that time? In Nazareth. That's a long way from Judea. And yet, the Messiah is going to have to be born in Bethlehem, but Mary's heavily pregnant. So, so how, how's God going to orchestrate that? Well, he could have just done a teleporting job, couldn't he? You know, the teleporting seems to show up in every movie. It could be a parallel universe teleport. It could be anything. God can do that. Mary is one day just, you know, no baking bread or whatever she's doing in, in Nazareth. And, well, here I am in Bethlehem, and it's time to give birth. God could do it. You know how he does it? You remember how he does it? We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. He does it through tax reform. The Roman Emperor Augustus wants to get more money from his taxation thing, so he institutes a tax reform, and it just happens, just happens, that Mary and Joseph find themselves in Bethlehem. See, there's no miracle there. There's plenty of miracles in the Christmas story, but that's not one of them. It's God's providence, ordaining what he wants to do in his own way. Now, this is my point about the Balfour Declaration at which I began with. Um, the decision to help the Jewish people return to the land of Israel after almost 2,000 years of exile was made by a group of largely unbelieving, pragmatic politicians who wanted to win a war. There's no miracle here. There's nothing to do overtly with, with God. Now, I want to say at this point that I know not every Christian, there are good people who would disagree with the way I see this particular act of providence. Um, but in the Old Testament, we have a problem. We, we, the problem is, is that we have predictions of a, a return on an epic scale of the Jewish people to the land of Israel in a scale that does not happen in the Bible's pages itself. And, and there's two ways that Christians have often looked at that. One is to say that those prophecies are fulfilled in a spiritual sense in the regathering of all of God's people into the church in the new Jerusalem. So, and so there's those things, are, there's a spiritual fulfillment, not a literal fulfillment. And I believe in that. I believe that the promises of a return we see in the Old Testament are fulfilled in all nations coming under the Lordship of Jesus. All nations and then coming together in the new Jerusalem. Yes, but, and here is where not everyone will agree with me, I believe there's also a physical literal fulfillment, that what the Bible preaches and predicts in the Old Testament is ultimately filled in a literal sense, God promising the return of the Jewish people from, from their exile at the end of the Roman conquest of, of Jerusalem into their land. I believe that's a prediction, and I believe that what we see in living memory, well, not the Balfour Declaration now in 1917, that's not really living anymore, but in the events of 1947 and 1948, there's no miracles there in UN resolutions and votes and, and politics in the Middle East. I believe we see God's sovereign hand moving, ordaining what seemed impossible for hundreds of years, that the Jewish people would be called back to their own land and made a nation again. You could call it coincidence. I call it providence. 
God ordaining his purposes in his way. And this hidden providence that we see on, in world history, you can look at the events of the world today, God is present in those. All the things that are happening, he's ordaining them. But also, it's true of our own lives. Because it's easy to ask, where is God in those seemingly accidental things? Where, where is God in the slip of concentration in, in a car that leads to an injury that won't heal? Um, where is God um, in the loss of a job because your company moves offshore? Uh, where is God in, in a marriage destroyed because of, of a brief encounter and a moment of weakness? Where is God in that? Where's God in the countless coincidences and apparently random events which dominate your world and mine? Some good, some bad. The book of Esther will remind us again and again that God is not abandoning you. Say that again. God is not abandoning you. In those things that you seem as evil, he's there. What happens in your daily existence is not an accident. God's Hasn't, he's not taken his hand away. It, you may not see it, but it doesn't mean it's not there. It is there. He is working silently, invisibly, but he's working. I need to be reminded of that, don't you? I need to be reminded of that when the times are difficult. And you say, why, God, where are you? And his answer is, I'm there, Andrew. I've always been there. You may not see me, but I am there. And you know what he's working towards? He tells us. Everything he does is working towards the establishment of his eternal kingdom under the reign and lordship of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is working towards that end. That's the end of God's providence. All of these loose threads are being tied into a beautiful tapestry where Jesus will reign. And you go, he's already reigning? Yes, he is, but not one day as he will be. He is coming to reign in full glory. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess his lordship. That's what God's kingdom is working. And you go, well, what, what's my part in that? What's he working in my life in all of these apparently random events? Well, the Bible tells you, doesn't it? Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. There's not a single thing that is happening in your life or my life there's not a single thing that's happened in your life in the past which God will not take and work for good. God's providence is working in all those things. And you might say this morning, well, it's sunny and warm, it's a beautiful summer day and I'm on holidays, I don't need to know that. One day you will. You will need to know it because you will question where's God in the midst of this. You will question, why is he hidden? Where's the miracle? And the book of Esther will tell us again and again, God is there. And he is working all things for your good that you might be conformed to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That at the consummation of his kingdom, you will be found with him. So what do we conclude? And band guys, you can come up. What does a book where God is not even mentioned have to tell us about God? Well, Ahasuerus could write in his description, he could say, I am the king of this great earth. The book of Esther will say, there is a king of this great earth and it's not you, Ahasuerus. You're dead. But there is a king of this great earth and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he stands enthroned and in, in, in glory. And even though we don't see him, people say, yeah, well, when he comes back to earth, well, people won't accept him because we've got technology and we've got iPhones and stuff. We're not gonna, when the king comes again, we will all bow before him and it will be seen that everything in this whole universe has worked in the providence of God towards this great king over this great earth. The theologian Abraham Kuyper put it like this, and I'm gonna close with this. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. <laughs> There's not a square inch of the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That's good news. That's wonderful news when God seems hidden. And I pray, Father, as we begin this book of Esther, would you help us to see that your hand of providence is working all things? Would you help us to trust in you? Uh, when we see the miracle and we see the incredible, miraculous work in our lives or in our world, and help us to trust when we don't. Help us to trust when you leave us only to see your hidden hand working in your world. Build our faith. Help us to be full of trust that you are working all things for our good and for the establishment of your eternal kingdom under the reign and lordship of your son, Jesus, our saviour. Amen.